0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity that we have living in this country to study the Bible, to glean the truth in the midst of a generation and a world that has lost its moorings and its bearings. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be like a ship just wandering and floating out in the middle of the ocean, but we can have definite direction and instruction following those principles that you have given out of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've heard a few people coughing as we were praying and no smoking. Just remember that. The Jews have called this part that we're studying, the giving of the law, the kernel and the core of the entire nation. The Jews reverence the law. And the giving of the law, has become the hinge for the entire nation of Israel. They will refer to this episode coming out of Egypt, going through the Red Sea, going through the wilderness, the giving of the law at Sinai, as the hinge and the birth of their nation. This is where they say the nation of Israel is born, at Mount Sinai when God reveals Himself in all of His splendor and His glory. And lest you think, wow, it would be awesome to be there at Mount Sinai. Think again. It really wouldn't be. It wasn't beautiful. It was dreadful In fact, God will say, don't let people touch this mountain lest they keel over, lest they die, because God was revealing himself in his majesty and his holiness. The law of Moses was a covenant that God made with his people. That is an important word, and you ought to know it. The covenant, or the pact, the agreement, is a way that man relates to God and God relates to man. The only way holy God and sinful men can ever get together is by having some agreement, because they're so different from one another. And so God is related through the covenants. He began with a covenant in the Garden of Eden. He then went to the covenant that he made with Abraham. To you and your descendants I will give this land and everyone who belongs to those descendants after you. It was a promise that they would inherit the land. In fact, it says the reason God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt is because he remembered the covenant that he made with their forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembered the promise. And so he delivers them and now they enter into a special relationship of the commandments the law given from Mount Sinai. And this law is very important because it gives to the children of Israel and to mankind in general rules for living, principles to be guided by, direction. One of the most important things you can have whenever you travel is good directions. When I first moved to Albuquerque, I could not pronounce all of the terms. I had a tough time with Albuquerque. And I remember somebody telling me, uh, oh, I was given, uh, yeah, telling me to, to go up to Juan Tabo. Now, I didn't know how that was spelled, but when I saw the word, it didn't make sense, but I thought it was Juan Tebo, or I just I pronounced it really weird and I saw that name and I went by this street I don't know how many times. And as they were trying to give me directions, they weren't clear enough, and probably the word should have been spelled, but I tell you, even though this city is laid out very simply, very, very simply, it's very elementary, as a grid work, I had a tough time. Good, clear direction and understanding, that was my problem. Understanding those directions is essential for travel. Traveling through this life, we need rules to travel by, clear direction. If you were to ask people, what are the rules for living? You would probably have at least a handful say, oh, the Ten Commandments. But isn't it interesting, though people will talk about the Ten Commandments and respect the Ten Commandments and even revere the Ten Commandments, few even know what they are. Sort of like a license plate you know you have one, but what's your license number? I don't know mine. There was a professor at Boston College who took his class and told them to write on the chalkboard the Ten Commandments. He said it wasn't that they individually didn't remember them. All of us together, the entire class corporately, couldn't give us a complete list of the Ten Commandments, the rules for living. There is a departure. I mean, that goes without saying, a departure today from God's standards. Certainly in this country we couldn't characterize the United States as a society that tried to live by the Ten Commandments. Though there are some fundamental characteristics of the Law of Moses and the Ten Commandments woven into national life, we have departed. There is a sense of aimlessness today in this country. A sense of do your own thing whenever it feels right at that specific time. David in the Psalm said, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When you start seeing the eroding of the basic moral fabric and fiber of your society, a righteous person says, what is there left? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So God gives to these people wandering through the desert. They've left Egypt. Two and a half million refugees intense. He gathers them around a mountain called Sinai in the peninsula of Sinai. Modern-day Jebel Musa is the name of the mountain by the Arabs, 7,500 feet high. And God will reveal himself in his glory and majesty giving them the Ten Commandments. Look at the Ten Commandments this way. They are principles whereby God has given to men the ability to live to the max. I believe that God wants us to live to the very highest potential that is possible. Our problem is that we don't believe that Father knows best and that as, if we make up the rules as we go along that, we, you know, we kind of decide what will fit for us. And as we become extremely existential in our outlook, we think that's the way to fulfillment. It's not. God wants you to live it up. And the only way to live it up is to live it up His way. If you depart from God's commandments, you depart from the will of God, you won't live it up. You will reap the consequences. God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Jesus spoke about fullness of joy. God has given the commandments so that we might live to the highest potential. Verse 1 In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim," remember that oasis that we spoke about the last couple of weeks, "...came to the desert of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain." Let's talk for just a minute about the basic reasons that God gave the law. A lot of questions come up, well, how does the law deal with me as a New Testament Christian? I'm not under the law. You're right. But there were some backing up basic reasons that God gave the law to the children of Israel. They left Rephidim. They're camped at Sinai. This is the hinge. These are the instructions. The coach sort of takes them in the dugout. Moses hears what's happening, goes down, tells the children of Israel. And before they march anywhere else, before they go through the wilderness, reach Kadesh Barnea, get into the land. Here's the fabric of their society. It was given, number one, because God loved them. God didn't want to cramp their style. God loved them. One of the problems I've had growing up is that I've always viewed the law as negative. It's a funny thing about kids, especially when I was a teenager. Whenever I saw a policeman, I panicked. I figured he was out to get me. Probably because I had a guilt complex. I usually went over the speed limit. So I obviously had something to hide, not only the speed limit, but a few other things. A couple months ago, when I was driving back home through California and I saw a California Highway Patrol in my rearview mirror, I just white knuckled it. And then I caught myself. I thought, what am I worried about? And I looked at the speedometer and I said, oh, that's what I'm worried about. But it. the reaction was really because I had grown up seeing the negative implications of the law rather than the positive. Now, there is a speed limit. But that is not negative. It's positive. The speed limit enables me to get from a place, point A to point B, safely, and let others get there safely. The law was created and the roads were created not just for me but for others. So it's there for a positive reason. And we have to see that the law was given for a positive reason, because God loves us to enable us to go through life. God has given those things to us. And it sets definitions on our love for God. How can you prove your love to God? Now, you're not saved by the law, but let's ask this question. How do you prove your love to God? By saying it? By singing it? Does that prove your love to God? Well, Jesus said, if you love me, you what? keep my commandments." So you have something outward and visible that demonstrates your love for God. It defines that love. It also puts definitions on your love for man. In fact, you find that the first, well, we'll get to that in chapter 20, but the first four commandments deal with your relationship with God and the last six deal with your relationship with men. Another reason God gave the law, and this is even more fundamental, is to restrain evil. To restrain evil. Man basically has an evil nature. I know you have not been taught that in public schools. You have been taught that man is basically good and you just got to find that spark of good and encourage it and fan it into a flame. It's not true. Because of the fall of man you have an evil nature. You teach children to tell the truth. You don't have to teach them to lie or to cheat or to connive. They do that naturally. And the law was given. God knew that because of the fall man had a natural nefarious personality. He was bent toward evil. The Minnesota Crime Commission a few years back released an interesting statement that I have kept on file and I'd like to read it to you at this time because I think it's very apropos. The Minnesota Crime Commission stated, Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, and his uncle's watch. Deny him these, and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous if he were not so helpless. He is, in fact, dirty and has no morals, no knowledge or skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free rein to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up as a criminal, a thief, a killer, or a rapist. The law, then, is a tether set up to restrain those evil tendencies of men. In fact, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy... In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he said, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, for the ungodly, and for sinners, for the unholy, the profane, for murderers, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, and for manslayers, for fornicators, sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. That's what the law was given for. If people were altogether good, why have a law? Why have a restraint? Do people naturally keep the law? Do people, let's say you took out all road signs and speed signs and traffic laws. What would the roads be like? Well, I've been to some countries that are a little bit looser in the keeping of road laws. And it is just a miracle to survive walking across the street sometimes. I mean, it is unbelievable. And a lot of people are killed in those arenas because people do what they want to do when they want to do it. It's the natural propensity that man has. So it's given. God gave the law to man because he loves him, to regard man, to restrain evil, and also to reveal what's inside of us. As soon as a law goes up and says, you shall not do it, we're all aware of the fact that we look at it and we go, I've done that. It reveals the heart of men. Paul said, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law reveals sin. There was a newspaper editor who was trying in a very small town to fill up a little column that he had in the newspaper. He had nothing left to go in there, no uh, articles, and he just had this little strip left. So he decided to run in. One week, the Ten Commandments. It fit perfectly. So he ran a copy of the Ten Commandments in the newspaper. No comments, just the Ten Commandments. That week, he got a phone call from one of the people who had subscribed to it and said, Cancel my subscription, you're getting too personal. All he did was run the Ten Commandments, but it's amazing how the law reveals things about ourselves. That's why Paul said it's like a mirror. You look in the mirror and you go, Ew need some makeup, need to comb that hair a little bit, need to take care of that wrinkle. It reveals the truth. And so does the law. Remember when you were a kid and you took a piece of your hair and put it under a microscope? And you thought, boy, you know, this, my hair, look how nice and shiny it is. And you put it under a microscope and it looks raspy. Right? Really ragged. You see all of the imperfections. Or you take a sewing needle, put that under a microscope. It shows you all of the irregularities. It's not as smooth as it looks to the naked eye. When you put your life under the scrutiny of the law that God gave, it shows the utter sinfulness of man. And what does that do? Hopefully, it drives us to the cross, as we'll see tonight. And so they departed from Ephedim. They came to the desert of Sinai, camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself." What a beautiful example of Hebrew poetry. Actually, it's a beautiful example of how God condescends to reveal himself in human language, something that we've already seen as an anthropomorphism, technically. God reveals himself to mankind so that we can relate to God. But think of the metaphor. I brought you on eagle's wings. When I first went through this passage, I decided to look up the meaning of this word and exactly what it means and some of the history and background behind it. And the Hebrew word is nesher, which speaks of the griffin eagle, which is the large bird of prey, eagle, that still lives in the Middle East, and Israel especially. And there are a few characteristics that make this more meaningful to us. Number one, the griffin eagle will, and most eagles, will build their nests high in inaccessible places, high up in canyon shelves. If you've ever been up to the Black Canyon of the Gunnison up in Colorado and you see up on the top of some of those crests, the eagles that are way up high in inaccessible places. And there, that little baby eagle is completely dependent on mom. If mom decided to split for the day and have a long bird bath somewhere, that little eaglet would be out of luck. That eaglet is totally dependent upon mother because it's in a complete out-of-the-way place. The children of Israel were brought by God into the wilderness into a place that had no natural provision, no natural protection, where they were totally dependent on God like a little eagle. I brought you an eagle's wings in an inaccessible place. Another thing about eagles, they're very protective. They have strong legs, strong beaks, and claw- uh, curved large talons. They are birds of prey and they are very aggressive. And if you ever plan on ripping off a baby eagle, you better be born again. Because mama is going to come after you. And probably you won't survive. That mother has got the instinct by God to tear any other uh, threatening animal or man to pieces. Very, very protective. Now in terms of the children of Israel, they were brought out to the wilderness. They were kept in God's nest of protection. The Egyptians started pursuing them. They started poking at the nest, thinking they're trapped by the wilderness, let's pursue them. And all that served to do is ruffle up God's feathers. God destroyed them like a mother eagle would anybody who would interfere with her nest. Very very protective. Another interesting thing about this eagle is that they mature very slowly, which I think is a great description of the children of Israel and even us sometimes. And the lessons of the wilderness are great analogies to the way a mother eagle would train her young. You see, a mother eagle, when it's time for the little eaglet to learn how to fly, there's that nest high up on that cliff in a canyon. And the mother eagle knows that that eaglet can't stay in that nest forever. It's warm. It's protective. And so it's time for the first flying lesson. Now, the mother eagle doesn't say, now, honey, we're going to have flying lessons. First, here's a classroom, and here's a chalkboard, and here's how your wings are constructed. And, the, you know, the way the mother eagle does it is we'll nudge that little eaglet to the edge of the nest and then push it out. Now, that little baby bird has all of the faculties built in at that point to fly. It just doesn't know it, but it's about to learn pushes it out of the nest, and guess what happens? Just starts plummeting to the earth. As it's plummeting to the earth, what is that eaglet thinking? Do you think if we could translate it into English, it would be something like, my mother doesn't love me anymore. My mother hates me. She's trying to kill me. It's not the truth, though. That mother eagle hovers and watches carefully as that eaglet swoops down over it. And right before that splat, the mother eagle swoops underneath it and catches the baby eaglet with her wings, strong wings, delivers her up to the nest. Lesson number one is over. Time for lesson number two. Very much the same as lesson number one. Boom! Pushes out of the nest. After a while that eaglet will catch on and start moving the wings, become frantic and see that, hey, as I spread these wings out, I displace the air that's coming across my body and I can soar. The children of Israel were taught so many lessons as God shoves them out of the nest, takes them to Rephidim, and they say, there's no water. God doesn't love us. Lesson number one. There's no food. God doesn't love us. We're going to die out here. Oh, we should have stayed in Egypt. But just before they think they're going to splat, the strong arm of God is there to protect them. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. You've seen how I borne you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. You saw what I did for you. All of the things that the gods of Egypt could never do to you or for you. Amun-Ra, the god of the sun, never helped you. Apis, The bull god never gave you any consolation. Heka, the frog goddess, never helped you. But I bore you on eagle's wings, God said, and I brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a segula, in Hebrew, a special treasure or a precious object to me above all people, for all the earth is mine." God is looking for people to be a special treasure unto himself. It's always been the heart of God. To establish a covenant with them whereby God can show to them his love and they can become a special treasure and experience the special treatment of a loving God. We I think have a problem in that some of us do not believe that God loves us as much as the Bible says he does. Paul to the Ephesians prayed, oh, that you might know the riches of God's inheritance towards you. If you would only realize how much God loves you, he's saying, that you're a special treasure to him. I don't feel that way sometimes. Could it be that God's showing you a lesson to mature you, kicking you out of the nest, getting those wings to spread out, getting you to soar and see things you've never seen before instead of keeping you up on that little ledge? Oh, I like the ledge. Ah, but you need to get out and spread your wings. And that's part of maturity. That you would be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests, verse 6, and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words, which the Lord commanded him. And then all the people answered together. Notice this. And said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now I would say that's a rash statement. Seeing that they haven't even heard what God commanded yet. But it's good so far. In fact, in Deuteronomy 25, God commends them for that attitude. All that God commands you, we will do. But did they ever do all that God commanded them? No. In fact, no one in history has ever been able to keep the entire law of Moses save one. And that is Jesus Christ. He came not to annihilate it, but to fulfill it. He completely kept it. But the law reveals the sinfulness of man, the inadequacy of man. It brings us to our knees. It helps us cry out for a Savior. The law never justified anyone. Paul said in the book of Romans and Galatians. Yet here they are. you tell us whatever it is and we'll do it. Much like the Christian who says, whatever God wants that's what I want. I want to keep the will of God no matter what. I've heard a lot of people say that, but when it comes down to obedience it's a different story. I don't want to do that. In fact, usually what they mean is, I want to do the will of God as long as it fits with my agenda. All that God has said, we will do. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In the book of Galatians, the third chapter, Paul expounds on this and he says, for the law was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. A schoolmaster. Some of your translations say tutor. The Greek is paedagogos. It's somebody who was a personal slave or servant who lived at home in the ancient Greek times was in charge of feeding the child, sometimes spanking the child, and when the child grew old enough would lead that child to school. Say, look, there's the schoolhouse, go for it. It had a specific job to tutor that child, to train the child, and to point the direction somewhere else to maturity. That's what the law did for us. The law never justified us. We looked at it, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And every time we looked at it, it, we said, I did that, that, and that. And where does that leave us? Poor in spirit. We start saying, I need a savior. And so it points us and leads us to the cross, which brings us to salvation. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So part of this demonstration at Mount Sinai was to vindicate the leadership of Moses because the people had been complaining against Mo for a long time. Who made you ruler over us? God is showing, I did so it's to vindicate his leadership. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, go tell the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. This is a symbolic action. And you will see this symbolic action develop more intricately and more fully as their history goes on. The idea was to impress these people that God is holy. You just don't go up and approach God and go, hey God, what's happening? That's something we perhaps don't fully appreciate living in the New Testament, because we can come anytime boldly, right? They couldn't. They tried to come boldly, they would be boldly dead in the Old Testament times. And so they had to come very trepidously, very cautiously. And so as you come, you sanctify them and let them wash their clothes. This is speaking of a spiritual cleansing. And, and we'll read it as we get through the book of Exodus and Leviticus, but you're going to see how that washing becomes very important. Cleansing before worship becomes very important to the children of Israel. If you go to Israel today, if you go to uh, the top of Masada or Jerusalem, you see the excavations of these plastered ritual baths called mikvaot, plural, mikvah, singular. It was the predecessor to Christian baptism. Before you go worship, you wash your hands, feet, dip your whole body, wash your clothes, put them back on, and go to worship. Before you sacrifice in the temple, if you're an outsider, you've been walking through Israel, you cleanse yourself in the mikvah. And as you are cleansed, and again, it spoke of a spiritual cleansing. It was more than just ceremonial. We look back and go, oh, that's a bunch of ceremonies. God could care less about it. God commanded it. But the idea is that as you are cleansed outwardly, it speaks of a cleansing inwardly. In fact, the ancient rabbis used to say, a person who is cleansed in the mikvah, if he doesn't have a special intention in his heart to being cleansed before God, it's a worthless baptism. That's why John the Baptist came and he said, bring forth fruits that are befitting repentance. As he was baptizing in the Jordan. Verse 11, And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. And Moses went down from the mountain to speak to the people and sanctified the people. And they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it shall come to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings, lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. They didn't think, hey, this is neat. They were scared. They trembled. The rabbis concerning this have a saying, no mortal can gaze upon the unveiled majesty of God. God was revealing his holiness to these people before he gave them the law, and they were shaken. And they're going to say to Moses, you go. You go talk to God. You tell us what he told you. We don't want to talk to him. The idea of coming into the presence of God was not a privilege to them. They wanted to stay far away because of these kind of events. It talks about the trumpet was very loud so that all the people in the camp trembled. The word uh, trumpet here is the shofar or the ram's horn, which will become very important as you'll read throughout the Old Testament. Uh, There's the Feast of Trumpets. There's the trumpet on Yom Kippur at the beginning and at the end. Uh, There's the trumpet on the New Years. Uh, It's a signal that worship is beginning or that God is to be present with his people. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly." Not a beautiful event, I would say a dreadful event. It was meant to show the character of God. Now to bring that uh, more to a New Testament perspective, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Listen to the comparison in verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an immeasurable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the just or of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel." Now, this brings up an interesting and important difference between the synagogue and the church the Jewish people and the Christians. To the Jewish people, those who worship in synagogues, the covenant in Mount Sinai was it. It was the final word that is eternal. The Torah, they say, is eternal. Though the Christian looks at the law as important, certainly not the last word, is it? The Christian believes, what the first chapter of Hebrews tells us, that God in different times and different ways spoke to our fathers through the prophets in the past, but has in these last days spoken to us by his own Son, whom he made heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds. God's final word to man was not the Mosaic covenant, but the new covenant in Jesus Christ. It was predicted in the book of Jeremiah. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the children of Jacob, not like the old covenant, with the law written on tablets of stone, but the law will be written upon the heart, Jeremiah chapter 31. And we don't come to Mount Sinai quaking. We come into the presence of God. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 19, And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through and gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. There were always those curious people who, though everybody was shaking, would say, I want to go check it out. I wonder what God looks like. And they might edge their way through and God, out of love saying, Moses, I know there's a few guys out there that are like that. You tell them, stay back, Jack lest they die, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break out against them." Now if you are a a diligent student of Scripture, at this point you might ask, what priests? The priesthood hasn't even been commanded yet. And yet God at Mount Sinai is saying, tell those priests not to come forward yet God hasn't even given any instruction so far as a priesthood. Well, according to Rabbi Rashi and many other ancient sages, probably he's referring to the firstborn of the family. Remember when we talked about the right and the rule of the firstborn, the firstborn son in a family became the spiritual leader of the family. Jacob was interested in having the birthright of Esau. And Esau wasn't, because Esau was a man of the flesh, not of the Spirit. Jacob was interested in that spiritual relationship with God. And so this is the firstborn son, no doubt, that he's talking about, uh, who would come uh, near. And so they have to sanctify themselves. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and sanctify it. And the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Now we get the beginning of the law itself. And you've been given a handout tonight. You might want to refer to it. And it's set out for you, for your notes, so that it... Because, you know, you start reading Exodus, and at this point... After chapter 20, your mind will begin to get a little bogged down. You know, reading through Genesis is exciting and part of Exodus, it's awesome as you see the plagues of Egypt. Then you start getting to some of these, what we would say are weird laws. I don't know about reading through the whole Bible. I think Sunday nights I'm going to watch that television show I've been wanting to watch and you can get bogged down. We're going to see that these laws were given again out of love for the people and they've been set out in your outline so that you can commit them to memory. In chapters 21 through 23, after the giving of the Ten Commandments, there are laws that regard persons or personal rights, the laws of property, and the laws of piety. Those three Ps will help you commit them to memory. Persons, property, and piety, or holiness, as they're instructed how to worship. Now, here's the basis of the law in chapter 20. Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. Jesus said, if you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you love your neighbor as yourself, you will have kept all of the law. It's summed up in love. If you love God, you'll keep his Sabbath, you won't profane his name, you won't have other gods before him. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to rip him off, you're not going to commit adultery, and so forth. You're not going to murder him because you love him. On this hang all the law and the prophets. The first four commandments in chapter 20 are given for the relationship the man has with God. The second six are given about the relationship that you have with other people. And that is significant. God does not begin the commandments by saying, this is how you're to treat other people. He says, first you must learn how to relate to me before you can relate to other people. And that is a fundamental, basic principle of life. You could view your life in two planes, a vertical plane and a horizontal plane, fixed, right in the center, welded together, those planes are. If your relationship with God is out of whack and not aligned with Him, your relationship with other people will also be out of whack. If your relationship with God is in line and you live to please God and obey God, your relationships with other people fall into place. We have people come in every week who have relational problems. Problems with parents, kids, husbands, wives. And often they have a fundamental disobedient heart to the Lord They're unwilling to submit themselves to Him. Because of that they find that other areas of their life just don't fit. And this is the first base. You begin in your relationship with God. The Ten Commandments, and we've done a whole series on them, I just want to recap a few important principles, are the roots of your faith. The Christian faith has at its root system Judaism. I'll tell you, I think that's important. There are churches who who never read the Old Testament, ever. They just read the New Testament. Now, the New Testament is the covenant that we have with God. But Jesus himself said, I didn't come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. Well, if he came to fulfill it, Christians ought to study what he came to fulfill and see how it fits in. And Paul the apostle in Romans says, you New Testament Gentile believers, don't you boast against the... Uh, the branches, the, uh, the olive tree, or Israel, you've been grafted in as wild olive branches. And if God in his grace grafted you in, don't you boast against the root system. But we're to pray for Israel. We're a part of it. In fact, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, he, he said, We know what we worship because salvation is of the Jews. That's the thread that God chose to reveal salvation to mankind is through the prophets in the Old Testament. And we must pay attention to it and study it. It's also the foundation of society. Not just our society, but many societies around the world have taken the Ten Commandments as a foundation and a base for their legal system. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, said, Many ancient cultures have a surprising agreement in ethical and moral standards despite the cultural differences. Man has a basic understanding of these standards that God has established for his creation. Now, what does the law mean to us? Since man cannot keep the law or be justified by the law, since the law leads us to Jesus Christ, it's important to ask that question. Their parameters, they talk about and define our love for God and love for men. But we can't be justified by it. Remember Acts chapter 15? There was a group of people in the church who were very legalistic, as people still are in many churches, believe me. And they said to the early church, unless these new converts, these Gentiles, keep the law of Moses and get circumcised, they're not saved. Remember that? Remember what Peter said to them? He said, men and brethren, why do you try to saddle these new believers with a yoke that neither you nor your forefathers were ever able to bear? You've never kept it. Your forefathers never kept it. And now you're trying to make the Gentile believers keep what you can't. I think that's the ultimate of hypocrisy, the epitome and the pinnacle of it. The law is a plumb line. It, again, reveals our heart. Now we're going to go through these commandments tonight, if we have enough time, and we're going to see that they reveal us. It's it's a plumb line. It shows. What does a plumb line do? If a wall is crooked, what does a plumb line do? Reveals that the wall is crooked. You hang a plumb at the end of a string and you measure a wall and you go, "Ah, that wall is crooked. Can the plumb line fix the wall? No. Can the law fix you? No. It can only reveal that your life is crooked. There's a little poem that is often said. Do this and that, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly, but it gives me wings. The law reveals the stubbornness, the evil heart of man. It shows that our life is crooked. It drives us to Christ. We get saved. We love God. We love our neighbor, and we keep the heart of the law. Though not totally, not perfectly all the time, it's fulfilled in love, and it's fulfilled in Christ. And God spoke all these words, verse 1, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. God wants worship exclusively. He's not going to share worship with anybody else or anything else. I am the Lord your God. I delivered you from Egypt. Nobody else did. The Egyptian gods didn't. I won the battle of the gods. And now worship me and me alone, be exclusive. God does not exist to serve us. A hard word, but Americans need to learn it. God's primary objective is not to make us happy, it's to make us holy. God wants us to have fullness of joy. But temporarily we may suffer to get to that place of ultimate joy. I'm the Lord. Corey ten Boom said, just instead of telling God this and that, just report for duty. He's the Lord your God. He's numero uno. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, let's talk about why this was very important to the children of Israel. Where'd they just come from? Egypt. Did Egypt have lots of gods? They were used to seeing people worship a myriad of gods, right? They're about to go into what land? Canaan. Did Canaan have a lot of gods? Oh, more gods than you could shake a stick at. They made up new gods as their history went along. It was very much like modern Hinduism. They just had god after god after god, gods of the sea, gods of the earth, gods of fire. There were so many gods, as they were going into the land, God saying, now remember, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. You're going to be in Canaan where they worship a lot of different gods. Don't marry that system with me. You worship me and worship me alone. As they went into Canaan there were several isms, systems, that were present. There was polytheism, or the worship of many gods. There was pantheism. And pantheism is the idea that everything is a part of the divine mind. It's, it's like the new age today. Everything is God. I am God. You are God. The door is God. The mountain is God. We're all part of God, man. And you have God inside of you. And It's a bunch of bunk. God is saying, I am not equal with my creation. I'm separate and distinct from my creation. I have a fallen creation that needs to be redeemed. There was also something called henotheism. Henotheism was the idea that there were local gods that were competing for the market. You see, it would sort of be like there's the gods of the Northeast Heights and there's the god of Bernalillo and there's the god of the other side of the mountains. Really that's what they had in the Old Testament, henotheism. Conflicts between people groups were actually, they thought, conflicts between gods. And they saw that gods were very local. And uh, whoever won, that god was stronger. My god's better than your god. An interesting twist to this. If a prince of one country married a princess from another country, could you see what happens? The gods sort of tag along and move house. Her gods kind of become a part of his culture, and they get trained to worship more, it's more polytheistic than it was at the beginning. These were all dangers that faced the children of Israel. Solomon married foreign women who brought in false worship systems. King uh, uh, Ahab Ahab married Queen Jezebel, a Sidonian, who brought in foreign gods into the children into the uh, camp of Israel. And what was the most famous one's name? Baal. Baal is actually the name of several deities. It's just given the general term Baal, but it's the idea of the god and goddesses of fertility. And there was a marrying together of, let's worship Yahweh God who delivered us from Egypt, and we'll bring in these other gods and goddesses too. They did that. There was a syncretistic worship system that developed in the Old Testament. God was very against it, and it brought a lot of problems and judgment. The kingdom split, went into captivity to Assyria and to Babylon later on so God is warning them, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Now ask yourself this question, do you? Is he? Think of it this way, what is your master passion in life? What is the passion that drives you, that governs you, that motivates you? When you answer that question, you will have found your God. Well, how do I discover that? Well, what does your mind settle on? You know, a compass, if you move a compass in any direction, move it around place to place, it always settles. If it's a good compass, where does the needle always settle? North. Your mind is like the needle of a compass. It might focus on different things during the day, but when it settles down, what does it point to? A job, a relationship, a new house, a new position, or the living God? I am the Lord your God, you will have no other gods before me. Next commandment, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself any graven image, carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, listen to this, am a jealous God. I might throw some of you, oh, I can't picture God as jealous. Actually, jealousy can be in a good sense. It can become in an evil sense where it's spoken about even in the New Testament. But jealousy in a good sense can be a mark of love. Sometimes I'll hear a wife saying, oh, I don't have a jealous husband. I think you ought to. You ought to. If you're out talking to other men, rubbing shoulders with other men, it ought to arouse some feelings that, you know, that are feelings of, hey, I don't want her being with anybody else. I'm her husband. That's a part of love. I'm a jealous God. I want your affection totally. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments." The first commandment forbids the worship of false gods. The second commandment forbids the false worship of the true God. By what? Carved images. Now let me tell you how the Jews looked at this commandment. Now, I've got commentaries in every Old Testament book written by Jews, half in Hebrew, half in English. The Jews would look at this commandment in a very strict sense that you can't have any depiction at all, any picture, any photograph, any likeness of God or even uh, uh, image uh, in their midst, in their worship system. Now they would strictly through their history apply this. Here's an example. When Pontius Pilate became the procurator of Judea, and he was stationed at Caesarea by the sea, he decided to honor Caesar Augustus by having all of his soldiers carry ensigns, signs, throughout Jerusalem, including the temple area, with busts, pictures, images of Caesar on them. It was a desecration to the Jews. They left Jerusalem, marched to Caesarea, and said, Listen, Pilate, I don't care if you're Pontius or not, we want you to remove those things immediately. We're Jewish people. You're desecrating our worship system by these images. Get rid of them. That didn't make Pilate very happy. He decided to herd all of them in the amphitheater in Caesarea. Some of you have been there on our tours. Herded them all in that arena. Had the soldiers draw their swords and said, you better button up your lip or we're going to cut your throats. You know what they did? They laid on the ground and bared their necks, saying, kill us, but we're never going to recant this demand. And Pilate knew that he was now dealing with a group of people that were willing to die for this commandment. It was something very serious to them. And and there were three times when Pilate blew it with unreasonable uh, activities like this. Now, a question that people often come up with when it comes to this commandment is is that, what about art and what about depictions of Jesus and so forth? And I don't want to get too hard and heavy on it. I just want to say this. This commandment has nothing to do with art. It has something to do with worship. That's what it has to do with so instead of getting hung up on the implications of the legal aspects of can I have a, a, a picture of Jesus in my house and, you know, I don't have any pictures of Jesus in my house because I don't know what he looked like. And they changed from generation to generation. The pictures of Jesus in the 50s uh, showed a very white, emaciated kind of Christ. And uh, then he came to the 70s and 80s and they made him more look like a surfer and it just, they. They tailor it depending on the generation what's in vogue. But the idea is not art, it's worship. I'll tell you how I know that. Because if it had to do with artistic replications of man, beast, or animal, then God violated his own commandment because he commanded images to be made in the very tabernacle itself, like cherubim and wings stretching out, touching each other. And uh, the curtains displayed angelic heavenly beings on them. And there were flowers, plants that were uh, commanded by God to be put in the tabernacle and the adornments of it. But the idea has something to do with worship. That is an image that aids a person in worshiping God. God says it is forbidden. And so that's why it says in verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And he talks about visiting the iniquity and so forth. Why, is, why did God make this commandment? Simply because there's nothing you could ever make that would adequately represent God, right? Is there ever an image or a picture that really tells the whole story about the nature of God? Nothing. God is so infinite, to make an image destroys the concept of his being infinite. It makes him finite. makes him very limited. And God is unlimited. And so hence the command. Also know this, in pagan systems of worship, back then and even today, people who make images, and I got to say this, even among the ranks of certain Christians that make images, they believe that somehow, especially the spirit behind the image, dwells in the image. That if you desecrate the image, you desecrate that person or that God. In Mesopotamia and in Canaan, they would dress their gods and wash their gods. Because they believe that the very spirit dwelt within them. Uh, I'm going to be in India at the end of February. And in India they believe that Shiva or Kali actually embodies that little graven image. And they dance around it and bow down to it and so forth. Now you could say, well, what's the big deal here? Why would God make a whole commandment? What's wrong with an image if it's helpful? I mean, if it's going to remind a person of God, what's the big deal? Simply this, an image dishonors the glory of God because it doesn't tell the whole story. Remember, what did Aaron make when Moses was up getting these commandments? A golden calf. Why? Because he had been in Egypt and they worshiped Apis the bull. And he was trying to show an important depiction. He was trying to show that God, the God he worshiped, was stronger than Apis the bull. Probably that was the reason for the depiction of God as a calf, a golden calf. He's trying to say, God is strong, God is mighty, This is the God that delivered us from Egypt, O Israel, worship. His intention was good, to demonstrate God's strength. But did that bull tell any story about the moral characteristics of God? His love, his kindness, nothing. It just depicted strength. And so it was inadequate, it obscured the glory of God, and it was forbidden. Also images mislead people. It gives you a false idea. It's psychologically proven that whatever a person fixes his mind upon, that's the idea in his mind of how he should relate to that God. It can mislead mankind. And so it's always dangerous to reduce God to a comfortable imagination. You're creating God in your own image. You have no right to do that. In Kyoto, Japan, my wife and I were there several years ago, Uh, there is a special shrine in Kyoto, Japan, the temple of the thousand Buddhas. And as you walk in this temple, there are a thousand depictions of Buddha, very depicted very differently. And it was built so that the worshiper could go in and find the Buddha that most looks like himself and worship it. And you know what? That's basically what an image is. It's a depiction man has made and reduced the glory of God to an image likened to men. It misleads men. It obscures their glory. And God said, when you worship me, don't have images. That's what the heathens do. You say, oh, but it reminds a person of God. Listen, if you're in communion with God, you don't need to be reminded that he's there. It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot God. If you have a relationship with him, the spirit of God lives in your hearts and makes real Jesus to you. And so God forbid it. And we're almost out of time, but look at the third commandment. We can get through that. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. If you ask most church-going people what this means, a lot of them will say, cussing. Though you just can't cuss. God is against cussing. Especially using his name. The term and the commandment is actually against careless speech. Careless speech. Especially invoking the name of the Lord your God. In fact, the Knox translation says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God lightly upon your lips. Why? Because in the Bible, a name means more than a label. It embodies the character of the person. The name of God is used in different forms 300 times in the Bible, always in reverence. In fact, the strict Jew, the orthodox Jew to this day will not even say God. I have a friend in Israel, an Orthodox Jew in his family, whenever he faxes me from Jerusalem, he puts G dot 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 D. He didn't even want to spell the whole word in English. Because they believe that human lips aren't worthy to even utter the name of God. That's how much they reverence it. Don't take the name of God lightly upon your lips. Now, Jesus said And here's where it applies to us. Many will come to me and say in that day, Lord, Lord, using his name, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many wonderful works in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They took his name to their lips, but never exemplified the character of his name in their life. They took his name lightly upon their lips. They drew near with their lips, but their hearts were far from God." You see, whenever you take the name of God, and if you're a Christian or you claim to be a Christian, you're not perfect, I'm not perfect, but your life needs to display who you say you follow or don't use his name. When you see the title Rolls-Royce stamped on a vehicle. Rolls-Royce is very particular about that vehicle. It has a message. That name has a message. First message is a lot. Second message, there's a certain amount of hand-crafted uh, work that goes into that. It's a high-quality product. Uh, there are engines. And, and it, it's, You don't see a Ford uh, Escorts with a Rolls-Royce emblem on it. Now, you might see one, but it's illegal to do it, and the person who has it is going to get in trouble because you're misrepresenting the name with a, what they would call uh, a less of a product. So you say, well, I'm a Christian. I take the name of God in my life. Well, then his character needs to be displayed, right? One pastor that I know said he was visiting a jail one time, and a guy was, came up to him and said, hey, brother, I'm a Christian. He said, well, what are you doing in jail? And it wasn't for preaching the gospel. It's because he had some uh, illegal actions and uh, he had been living a life very opposite of what the gospel says. he says, I'm a Christian. And the pastor turned to him and said, do me a favor, do us, Oliver, don't tell anybody. Because you drag the name of God in the dirt. Again, don't get the message that you're flawless, but if you take the name, the name that you take needs to reflect the product of your life. G. Campbell Morgan said, profanity in the church is worse than profanity on the street. The blasphemy of the sanctuary is far more insidious form of evil than the blasphemy of the slum." Now, think about it. The worst form of blasphemy is not the unbeliever who shakes his fist at God and yells profanities at God. The worst form of blasphemy is the person who says, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but his life is lived in disobedience to God. And he never gives God a thought Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He just lives like the rest of the world. No difference, but he takes the name of God. That's the worst blasphemy. Don't take the name of the Lord your God lightly upon your lips. And uh, next week we'll finish it up with the Sabbath and the rest of the commandments. Uh, This is the last commandment that deals with our relationship with God, the fourth commandment, and then the relationship that we have with others. We'll finish up the chapter see how far we get into the next chapter. Let's pray. Lord, you are, well, you're indescribable, holy, separate, Flawless, perfect. And your name embodies your character. And so we want to reverence your name. Father, I pray that When we say, Lord, Lord, it would be followed by doing those things that you've told us to do. For Jesus asked us, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I do or say? Father, I pray that if there are a few in this room tonight who have acknowledged that there is a gap, a credibility gap, between what they proclaim and how they live, that it could be that it only demonstrates that they've never had a relationship with you and they need to come to you for cleansing and forgiveness into a new covenant by the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ, something that trying to keep commandments could never afford nor give.